0: Hey there, and welcome to part one of our endocrine emergency series. Today, we're going to be talking about diabetic ketoacidosis. And if you catch us later, we'll cover the other endocrine emergencies that you might see. We're so happy to be back with you. And without further ado...
1: We have an 88-year-old male with a history of coronary artery disease, history of cabbage times four, diabetes, and BPH he presents to the emergency room after being found by his daughter with altered mental status and foul-smelling urine. He's been more forgetful lately, sometimes not taking his medications or taking double the dose.
0: So, before we get into the case and diagnosis and treatment, obviously, we're going to be talking about the physiology of diabetic ketoacidosis and all of the things that happened. And as one does, we like to make things more simple. So, Diabetic ketoacidosis, in a sentence, is when your body's insulin requirement acutely exceeds your body's insulin availability. Anytime your body needs more insulin than your body got, you're going to get DKA, maybe. (laughs) If it happens acutely. Okay. (laughs) So I really like to reduce these into two separate ideas. The first is going to be for patients who are on insulin, any interruption in that insulin delivery, be it not taking the insulin or taking less than prescribed, or maybe you have a kink in your insulin pump tubing. And One of the things that I really want to talk about is labeling patients as non-compliant when it comes to DKA. I think that we are the worst culprits with this particular disease of labeling people as not doing what they should be doing. And unfortunately, when somebody gets labeled as non-compliant with insulin therapy, for example that label carries with them throughout multiple hospital admissions they might have, it reduces things down to being the patient's fault without acknowledging things like maybe they can't afford insulin or maybe they don't have adequate education to think about it. And so I think this is a point to be careful about what we put in our notes and what we tell patients and how we sign out to other providers, quote, non-compliance with insulin therapy. Maybe we just take the extra second to investigate why are they non-compliant.
2: I also think insulin and diabetes in general is super complex, even for us as providers. I can barely remember to do anything on a regular basis, (laughs) let alone keep up with my glucose numbers. So I can totally understand where you're coming from, Jeremy.
1: Not just interruptions in insulin delivery, though. It could also be a reduction in insulin sensitivity. Usually this is preceded by systemic stress. Things like infection, myocardial infarction, burns, trauma, and pregnancy.
2: So not only is DKA something that we see pretty commonly, sometimes DKA can be the presenting diagnosis of diabetes.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's commonly thought that patients with type 1 diabetes are the only ones who get DKA, especially here in Georgia. That's not the case. In fact, most of my personal patient population have type 2 diabetes. This acute insulin imbalance essentially sends the body into a state of catabolism. And just as a reminder for you, remember you have anabolic processes, which build up components of your body. So this would be like protein synthesis for your muscles. It would be like fat storage. And then you also have catabolic processes. This would be things like breaking down glucose in the liver, so on and so forth. In the absence of insulin, your body only knows how to do catabolic things. So in terms of carbs, proteins, and fats, for carbs, your body is going to stop using glucose as an energy source and it's going to start breaking down glycogen, which we call glycogenolysis. This is why you end up getting hyperglycemia
2: is going to stop protein synthesis. So then you're going to start converting your protein into glucose, which leads to, you guessed it, hyperglycemia.
1: You start using fat as an energy source through lipolysis and a catabolic process called beta oxidation, essentially chopping carbons off fatty acid chains and using them as Krebs cycle intermediates.
2: Jamie, are you going to make us talk about the Krebs cycle? Yes, I always bring back the
0: Krebs cycle. This is very on brand for me. We've been doing this for how many years? And we've done this... How many times have I mentioned the Krebs cycle? I know, but I still don't like it. You don't have to like it. I'm the one talking about it. So here's the thing. Through beta oxidation, which is how we break down these fats, your body is able to take these carbons from your fatty acid chain and use them as Krebs cycle intermediates. That's great. That's how we produce energy. But here's the problem. Y'all got so much energy in your fat that your body does not have enough Krebs cycle enzymes to deal with all that energy. So you're chopping up fat, you're chopping up fat, you're delivering it for energy, and your body's like, yo, I can't do anything with this. And so instead, the chopped up fat can't be burned, so they just turn it into ketones. In small quantities, that's really not a big deal. You can use these ketones as energy, especially in the heart and the brain. But in large quantities, as we see in DKA, this is how you develop the ketosis and acidosis.
2: So earlier when we were talking about chopping carbons off into fatty acid chains, that turns into three ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone.
0: And all these catabolic processes bring us to this triad, the classic DKA triad that we talk about of hyperglycemia, ketosis, and acidosis. And personally, I think that we should add one more element to this triad. I guess in that scenario, we would call it a a quartet. Diabetic barbershop quartet? Is that not the word for it? You have triads? You have quartets? No, I think it's tetrad, dude. It's quartet. The DKA tetrad? tetrad? Sounds pretty cool, actually. (laughs) Anyway, so the triad is hyperglycemia, ketosis, and acidosis, but the DKA quartet adds a (laughs) hyperosmolar state.
1: The hyperglycemia, and even to an extent the ketone bodies, are osmotically active, meaning they concentrate the bloodstream and pull water out of our body cells. As the glucose and ketones make their way into the urine, water follows. This creates large volumes of urine in a process called osmotic diuresis. This ultimately leads to severe dehydration, hypovolemia, and electrolyte loss, particularly potassium.
2: So this is a perfect time to start talking about how these patients present to the hospital. So you've got your quartet or tetrad, (laughs) hyperglycemia, ketosis, acidosis, and a hyperosmolar state. So what does that mean your patient's going to look like? Well... Uh, The first thing you might notice when you walk in the room is the smell, particularly the smell of their breath. They're going to have that acetone, fruity odor breath. Are you
0: saying I should just roll in and go straight to my patient's mouth and take a sniff? Isn't that what you
2: already do? Have you been watching me? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) And then secondly, your patient is going to be dehydrated and hypovolemic. But wait, aren't those the same thing? Are you just trying to make me upset? Dehydration and hypovolemia are not the
0: same thing. Dr. Patterson would be very ashamed. <laughs> I know, he would. Sorry, Craig. Dehydration is a loss of total body water. And by extension, this means that the body becomes more concentrated. So manifestations of dehydration, I guess, would be poor skin turgor, maybe dry mucous membranes, and particularly hypernatremia. I think that you'd be really hard pressed to make a case for dehydration in the absence of hypernatremia. And I'm not saying it's not possible, but you'd have to do some physiologic acrobatics like osmotic diuresis in the setting of syndrome of inappropriate ADH to somehow make that work. And I highly doubt that's actually happening. So dehydration, loss of body water, concentration of body stuff.
1: This is much different than hypovolemia, which is loss of intravascular volume. It's essentially a reduction in the mean systemic filling pressure and preload hypovolemia manifest as tachycardia, hypotension, and signs of hypoperfusion.
2: These elements almost always coexist in DKA, but it is important to remember to separate them because they can be mutually exclusive. I've definitely had patients with DKA who had hypovolemia, but no real evidence of dehydration. And I've had patients with DKA who had dehydration, but were not necessarily hypovolemic. So it might sound like we're splitting hairs, but we're going to see later the treatment of dehydration and hypovolemia are not the same. So let's talk about some other ways they're going to present. They're going to have kuzma respirations <gasps> very nice demonstration.
1: As Jeremy just demonstrated, this is very fast and deep breathing.
2: They're also going to have, at times, severe abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. And this is mediated by prostaglandin. But A lot of times DKA can present with what looks like an acute abdominal process, which is just in fact severe abdominal pain related to the DKA. Some cases where we'd recommend considering a CT are if that patient has severe abdominal pain and only mild ketoacidosis? I think that's a good point. And it honestly
0: dovetails pretty well with the altered mental status seen in DKA. And it's sort of the same problem. Diabetic ketoacidosis can cause altered mental status, particularly in patients who have severe hyperosmolality because it messes with the water inside of your brain cells. But you can also have a primary neurologic process like meningitis that's actually driving the DKA. In the same way, though, not everybody needs a CT head, LP or an extensive neurological workup. You should consider a neurologic workup in patients who have altered mental status and a normal serum osmolality, which means you should probably order one of those when you're thinking about a patient with DKA who has altered mental status. But in the absence of this, just like abdominal pain, follow serial neurologic examinations, treat the DKA, and if it's worsening or unresolved, go ahead and get that CT or neurologic
2: workup. So, Rachel, how do you diagnose DK?
1: Well, John, there's not really a definitive criteria for the diagnosis of DK. Most patients are going to have hyperglycemia, usually greater always. than 250 milligrams a deciliter, metabolic acidosis in low but pH, and a high <laughs> anon gap with evidence of ketones, either urine or elevated BHB.
0: So, there are exceptions, and most of these patients are going to have hyperglycemia. Sorry, Rachel, not to call you out, but consider... Patients who are taking SGLT2 inhibitors like sitagliptin, these inhibit the sodium glucose transporters inside of the kidney. And the whole way they work is they make patients pee out their glucose, but they can still get DKA. So, these patients would have all the signs and symptoms of DKA, ketosis, acidosis, but they would have no hyperglycemia. This is something you need to look for. If somebody is on an SGLT2 inhibitor, they can develop something that we call euglycemic DKA. Man, I remember the first time I saw
2: euglycemic DKA, it was legit. What about the acidosis piece? They're not always going to have an acidosis, particularly your patients with severe nausea and vomiting. Because of all that vomiting which is, as you remember, hydrochloric acid, they can actually develop a metabolic alkalosis due to the GI losses. These patients may have hyperglycemia, ketosis, and an elevated anion gap, but a normal bicarbonate level and a normal pH level. So, we have a conundrum.
0: Take home, hang your hat on the anion gap and the presence of ketones for sure, but Don't let the absence of hyperglycemia or the absence of acidosis or acidemia deter you from diagnosing covert DKA. Use your clinical clues like history of diabetes, particularly patients who have type 1 or poorly controlled type 2, and then the absence of other obvious causes. Can we move on to the role of arterial blood gases in diagnosing DKA? I think this is a little bit controversial. Is this something that you order? Do you need a pH to manage your patient? What, what's like, do we need to put them through the pain of an arterial blood gas?
2: The person who trained me, Dr. Case, would say get BMPs and VBGs every four hours in DK. And this patient, it avoids sticking that patient's artery a bunch of times. I would say VBG for sure. I think for me clinically, I've
0: moved to a point where I will get a venous blood gas or venous pH on presentation. But if you're getting a BMP with any level of frequency, I think the bicarbonate and the anion gap give me enough information to not even need a pH. And I stopped trending venous pHs. Even when I did trend them, I've never run into a situation where the venous pH told me something that either the patient or
2: the anion gap didn't tell me anyway. Do not stick your patient for an ABG every four hours just because they have DKA. That is just cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, I,
0: I, I, don't, I, I think the arterial blood gas has, uh, in 2020, no role in diabetic ketoacidosis alone. So moving on to treatment, what do we do? We've diagnosed DKA. We've gone through all the things. We just start insulin, right? Just rocket fuel insulin and get them out of here.
1: Well, not exactly. In general, we advocate for a 3 pronged treatment approach that considered fluid status, electrolytes, and finally, insulin. We recommend that you move through these treatment prongs in that order. Fluid status, electrolytes, insulin.
0: To begin, why don't I take fluid status? We spent some time talking about hypovolemia and dehydration, and there's at least one person out there rolling their eyes, thinking that we're making some pedantic difference between terms that are essentially the same. But you have to remember that these patients are often both hypovolemic and dehydration, usually, but not always. And these two elements are treated differently. So let's start with hypovolemia. This begins with assessing the patient's intravascular volume status. How do you do that? Well, from an examination standpoint, I like to feel their skin. You know, Usually what I do is I'll bring myself to the side of the bed. I'll put my hand on the patient's radial pulse. And this tells me a couple things. I, I feel their pulse amplitude and I can feel their skin temperature. I can feel if they're diaphoretic. While I'm there, I can check cap refill really quick. I might go ahead and eyeball the neck veins, see if there's any jugular venous distension or if they're flat. I'm looking at the heart rate, the blood pressure. And these patients, are usually tachycardic, but not often hypotensive. If you're really unclear about fluid status, of course, you can use ultrasound and IVC assessment. Is anybody doing passive leg raises anymore? Oh, every shift, Jeremy. Every patient every single one straight up in the air. Most of the time, these patients are hypovolemic. So honestly, I don't take issue with just trying a fluid challenge and reassessing, you know, that just giving a liter of crystalloid, seeing how the parameters improve. And nine times out of 10, the patient's going to need a good bit of fluid. Here's where I think I differ maybe a little bit from some people. I only commit to about two to three liters, and then I stop I will reassess and if I think that you need more fluid, I will give you more. Some people may choose to say, oh, automatically with a diagnosis of DKA, I'm going to give six, seven liters. But I think there's a little bit of nuance. Not everybody needs that much fluid. Not everybody is that hyperosmolar and osmotically diuresing. So for me, two to three liters, stop and then go ahead and reassess and see if the patient needs more crystalloid at that point. What do you all think about that?
2: The only thing I would give, especially our, our newer listeners, caution, about using that approach is you definitely have to have the reassessment piece, and you also definitely have to be confident in your volume assessment skills. And so, if you don't feel confident with either one of those things, let's say the shift gets busy and you don't get back to reassessing that patient, you're better off with more fluid than giving them two liters and withholding fluid and not recognizing they're not getting any better because you didn't get back to the bedside.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think. Personally, with either approach that you take, you got to reassess the patient. And I, I think that's a good point. Things do get busy, but these resuscitations for patients who are hypovolemic deserve attention and uh, not just, you know, give more fluid if the blood pressure is low or the heart rate's high. I don't disagree with you about if you're going to air one side or the other. After you move on from assessing the patient's intravascular volume status, the next point is to assess the patient's hydration status. And please remember, this is an assessment of total body water. So physical examination looks a little bit different. Look at the patient's mucous membranes. Assess their skin turgor. And this is what's traditionally been taught, though. These techniques, I think, have questionable value, probably, in isolation. I I I don't know that you can slam dunk a dehydration. And the real money is in in assessing the sodium level. As we said before, patients who have dehydration almost invariably present with hypernatremia. The idea here is that if they're losing body water, the body's going to become more concentrated and that concentration is going to manifest as a high sodium level. So can we just take the sodium at
2: face value? We just measure it in DKA, right? And that's that's what it is. Oh, definitely not in DKA, my friend. You heard of mm-hmm. hyponatremia Once or twice. So we need to use the corrected sodium calculation. You can just pull up MedCalc. We'll also drop that in the show notes. And so a lot of times in DKA, you'll see a patient with a sodium of 120. But then when you run the corrected sodium equation, you'll find out their true sodium level is actually something like 155. And one of the things that's funny and fools, especially our newest
0: people, they will think that something that they they did made the sodium rapidly go up. And it's because they looked at this initial value of 120, then they corrected the hyperglycemia over the shift. And suddenly now the new sodium is 155. On the first BMP that you get, if there's hyperglycemia, calculate that corrected sodium so that when you see the new sodium based on the corrected value, it's actually probably about the same. When you have confirmed dehydration through hypernatremia, you want to give a hypotonic fluid. Typically our our policy is to use half normal saline, which has about half the tonicity of normal saline, in other words it's just more dilute. I usually start my half normal saline at about 250 cc's per hour. And from here, I will follow serial sodium levels, making sure not to drop my corrected sodium by more than 10 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period.
2: If you need any more sodium goodness in your life, just make sure you go back to our salty episode on sodium. (laughs) Another good strategy, which I think is not as common as it should be, if the patient
0: can tolerate it, just ask them to drink water. Just because they're in a hospital, it doesn't mean you can't use the body's normal mechanisms for hydrating itself, which is putting water to your lips and then drinking it. That's it. Just regular water. So what if there is no dehydration? Like what if the sodium is normal? In that scenario, instead of half normal saline, I would still have a quote maintenance fluid. But in that situation, I would just have my maintenance fluid be isotonic instead of hypotonic. So instead of half normal saline, I would use just plain old normal saline. Earlier, if you remember, we made a distinction between hypovolemia and dehydration. And here's where you see the importance of that distinction. Hypovolemia, you treat it with crystalloid on the front end with fluid resuscitation with an isotonic fluid. Dehydration, you treat it with hypotonic fluid, like half normal saline or D5 or whatever. It is my total pet peeve. I will die on this hill no matter what every single time when people say we're going to admit the patient for aggressive hydration with normal saline. That's not I, it. I'm, first of all, I'm going to say,
2: Jeremy, you have a lot of hills you're going to die on. I'm just dead. <laughs> there's there's many. I can't even remember them all. There's so many. But I, I also love gentle hydration. It sounds so wonderful. I'm just going to be gently hydrated in the ICU.
0: What does that mean? What What does that mean? You can't gentle hydrate with, with salt. Like You know how much sodium is in a liter of normal saline? Now I'm mad. 9,000 milligrams. It's like if you were thirsty and you came to my doorstep and you're like, hey, Jer, I need some water. And I said, here's a bag of Lay's chips. That's hydration with normal saline. Although now I'm just getting kind of hungry, but I'm I'm done now. <laughs>
2: All right. So let's talk some electrolytes. So we've already talked about corrected sodium as it specifically relates to dehydration. But I do want to reiterate here in this section that you have to monitor the sodium level in DK, just like you would in any other patient, because that has its own major consequences. Like cerebral edema. Yeah, that's big time, isn't it? The big electrolyte to pay attention to here is potassium. So with all that osmotic diuresis going on, patients with DKA are going to lose a ton of potassium in their urine. In terms of total potassium, almost all patients with DKA have severe whole-body hypokalemia. However, the acidosis causes a shifting of potassium from the intracellular space to the bloodstream. So this means even though the patient may present with hyperkalemia, their true potassium level is actually quite low. Please, please, please don't treat hyperkalemia if you see it on initial presentation of DKA. Just your DKA treatment alone is going to resolve that abnormality.
0: And by extension, if anybody with DKA presents with hypokalemia, this is an emergency. Their true potassium is like in the VF range low because all that acidosis is shifting the very low potassium that's actually higher than it really is.
1: As you know from our hyperkalemia episode, insulin causes shifting of potassium from the bloodstream and back into the cells. So if someone is hypokalemic, starting insulin could cause life-threatening hypokalemia and arrhythmias like ventricular fibrillation.
2: So the general recommended approach to potassium is this. If potassium is less than 3.3, do not start insulin aggressively replace your potassium then recheck now i know this can be unsettling for some of you to not start insulin in a dka patient especially if that ph is remarkably low but just remember don't let the abnormal physiology lead you to make a bad treatment decision it's much better for a patient to sit with severe acidosis due to dka while you fix the potassium than it is to try and treat the dka and end up with a hypokalemic vf arrest Ooh, that's a bad
0: luck. absolutely Poor form. So if the potassium is greater than 5 milliequivalents per liter, go ahead and start your insulin and rest easy. Now, the potassium will end up normalizing, though actually you might end up needing to replace it at some point in the patient's treatment course just based on my own experience of seeing these.
1: And if the potassium is between 3.3 and 5.0 milliequivalents a liter, consider a maintenance infusion with potassium. I usually put 40 mil equivalents of potassium in my half normal saline, or normal saline if I evaluated the patient and determined they were not dehydrated.
0: The final pillar, of course, is insulin. Everybody always wants to rush to insulin, but after listening to this podcast, you definitely know better. You know that you need to address the patient's perfusion and volume status, and we know that we need to assess the potassium before we can safely administer insulin. Once those things have been done, then and only then can we start our insulin therapy. Usually, it's written by most major endocrine societies to give a 0.1 unit per kilo bolus of IV insulin, followed by a 0.1 per kilo per hour drip. Now, depending on where you are, you probably have your own protocol already written. We have an automatic device that kind of titrates based on the trends and the current glucose level. But the key here is you're actually not targeting a specific glucose level, contrary to popular belief. You want to get the body out of its catabolic state. You want to stop developing ketosis.
1: You want to get the body out of its catabolic state. You want to make it stop generating ketones. Accordingly, your target really isn't anything glucose related. It's simply closing the gap. This means the patient may develop hypoglycemia before the gap is closed. Usually what we'll do in this instance is we'll continue the insulin drip and switch to dextrose containing maintenance fluids, such as, you know, D5, D5 half normal saline, D5 normal saline, whenever the glucose level is less than 250.
0: So what about the never do The things we shouldn't do in diabetic ketoacidosis. We've already hinted at
2: one. Which is correcting hyperkalemia. It's going to get corrected automatically as you treat your DKA. If you go ahead and give K-exalate,
0: K-exalate? I'm not dying on that <laughs> hill today. That's for a different episode. But <laughs> if you give something to lower the potassium, you're going to end up in a bad spot with hypokalemia. Anything else we shouldn't do in DKA?
1: You should not give bicarb. <laughs> This is a high anion gap metabolic acidosis. And as we talked about in a previous episode, hagmas are acid producing, not bicarb losing. So giving bicarb it won't actually get you anywhere.
2: But what if the pH is super low? Still don't. It
0: actually worsens your pH. And we talked about this in our acid-base podcast. There's a lot of complicated you know, acid-base physiology that goes into this. But you worsen the intracellular acidosis and just make more PCO2. Don't do it. If your pH is so low that you think you should give bicarb, just give a 10 unit bolus of IV insulin instead. It will do the same thing.
2: And my favorite, please, please, please never do in DK is please don't intubate these patients.
1: But they look so if bad. You,
2: I know, they do. Their respiratory rate's like 40, or they're doing that deep breathing Jeremy so eloquently did earlier. <laughs> donkey dying of DK over there.
1: (laughs) What if I come on to my shift and someone with DK is intubated?
2: First of all you should respect that patient because you're in trouble and they're in trouble and they deserve your entire attention. So you're really going to have to try to optimize your minute ventilation. Uh, The example I always give is if your patient's breathing 40 times a minute and they are pulling total volumes of a liter, that means their minute ventilation is 40 liters per minute. There's no way you can match that on the ventilator at all, which is first of all, why we don't intubate these patients to begin with. If you got to do something, put them on BiPAP to augment their work of breathing. But in the event, like your situation, they already got intubated, you're going to have to probably use some sort of pressure support, high rate, whatever you can get out of the ventilator to get your max minute ventilation. But you're in trouble. You really are.
0: I think pressure support is not a bad idea. It's BiPAP light through an endotracheal tube, essentially. And if their mental status and work of breathing supports it, but I... Just don't intubate in the first place. Just don't do that. So how do we know when it's okay to transition off our insulin drip? Is there a set of things
2: we need to look for? I think the biggest thing is making sure that anion gap is closed. If the gap is not closed, do not transition the patient. Yeah, and there's this tendency to want to get these
0: patients out of your ICU get them off the insulin drip. And so, you know, you might have a trigger finger on that DC button, but it's always counterproductive and frustrating when you transition a patient, send them to the floor and their gap opens back up and they got to bounce back.
2: When their gap is closed, likely their hyperglycemia is better. Their acidosis is better. But the other thing you should think about is make sure they're tolerating PO of some form. So Rachel, how how do we transition them?
1: So first we need to give intermediate or long acting insulin. You're going to continue that insulin drip for about one to two hours after giving that long-acting insulin. And then once that's done, you'll turn it off. You'll continue the chosen insulin dosing regimen that they're either going to go home with or be in the hospital with.
0: So in terms of choosing that insulin regimen, I I like to divide this into three different options. You know, there's a hundred ways to do it, and most of them are going to require some element of titration. But I like to resume everybody's home regimen. Now, the thing that you have to think about is like, Why didn't their home regimen work? Why did they get in DKA? Is it because they couldn't afford it? They didn't take it? You know, if if they just didn't take it, then their home regimen probably still works. If this is a patient who was not on insulin prior, there's two things you can do, and that's calculate the 24-hour insulin requirement that they've been getting on the drip, and then just divide that into 50% basal insulin and 50% prandial insulin given three times a day or or whatever split you wanna give. The other thing that's documented is to do weight-based dosing, which is 0.25 to 0.5 units per kilo per day. I think this is a little bit less customizable, so to speak. And at the extremes of weight, either severely malnourished people or people who are very obese, this can not do good things to your blood glucose. So be mindful of that. So let's go ahead and give this a summary. Remember the physiology of DKA, blah, blah, blah. I know you don't want to hear it, John Heisler, but this is a situation where the body has an acute insulin imbalance and it goes into a state of catabolism that produces the quartet, so to speak, of DKA, which is hyperglycemia, acidosis, ketosis, and a hyperosmolar state.
1: It could also present with Kussmaul's respiration, severe abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and altered mental status, but you shouldn't necessarily jump to a CT.
0: In terms of diagnosis, don't forget that there's no definitive diagnostic criteria for DKA. Most of the patients, again, are going to have that quartet, but there are exceptions, especially in euglycemic DKA that you'll see in the SGLT2 inhibitors, or patients who have severe nausea and vomiting may not have acidemia at all. They might have a metabolic alkalosis. When
1: it comes to treatment, we advocate for a three-pronged treatment approach that you should follow in the exact order. Consider fluid status look at electrolytes, and finally give insulin.
2: Please don't correct that hyperkalemia. Please don't give bicarb. And please, please don't intubate these patients.
0: I hope you enjoyed part one of our endocrine emergency series. Today was diabetic ketoacidosis. Next up, we'll be talking thyroid disorders. So stay tuned. Until then, (laughs) keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.
1: Take your insulin.